love for you now to take your Bibles and turn with us to Psalm 110. And what we're looking at in the midst of December is a four-part series that deal with royal messianic themes. Though written in the time period 1000 B.C., prior to Jesus Christ's coming, you have here both a poetic description as well as a prophetic statement regarding Messiah who is to come. Now, when you and I begin to merge together these four psalms over the course of the month of December, we're being given a picture of this Messiah who is to come into this world, a picture that the Israelites were to be looking for to envision. And now you and I are finding, when we turn to this 110th psalm, that there's a distinctive about this one who you and I know was born in Bethlehem. Not only do we refer to him as king, but as this psalm helps us to understand, this is a king priest. And in your Older Testament, you know that the Israelites separated prophet from priest from king. But here in this passage, they merge together in this one we know as Messiah, Christ Jesus. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, fathers, we're looking into this passage, and we praise you, and we thank you for who you are, for how you work. We're thankful, Father, for each one here, specially designed, made by you. Now, maybe he or she came in here this morning feeling insignificant after what they've gone through in recent days. But they were made in your image. Designed for your purpose. Shaped according to your will. If he or she loves Jesus and is born again, You've invested spiritual gifts in that person. Unique gifting, a blending of gifts to have an impact designed by you and all for your glory, but we are to be the means by which this happens. There are going to be those, Father, in these services today and again tonight that might be religiously or spiritually curious intellectually thirsty, but have not yet resolved the matter of the relationship with you through the work of Christ. I pray, Lord, by the work of the Holy Spirit that you will speak to their heart and force them to wrestle with the question, is there anything now in light of the evidence that is found in your word and in the course of history? that should keep me from putting faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Speak profoundly to that heart, and I pray they'll leave different than they came. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. And shape these wills. For again, Father, we've come here See Jesus, him only.
We pray this again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a very powerful exchange that was taking place in the country of India. Mahatma Gandhi, their prime minister, was face to face with some missionaries who wanted to share the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ has died for your sins, my sins. And that the only basis for salvation was not in the syncretistic philosophies of spirituality in India, but based upon the work of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. He began to grapple with the significance of that claim that was being shared pertaining to Jesus. And then made this very powerful statement that I think has direct bearing on this passage this morning. He said, I am unable to place Jesus Christ on a solitary throne. Yet that's exactly what this passage of Scripture demands of us that we look very carefully at this prophecy delivered poetically 1,000 years prior to Jesus Christ's steps into Bethlehem and examine carefully the claims of Christ and all of the prophetic evidence surrounding Christ and ask, is there anything in my life and is there anything regarding Christ's claims that I see now that would keep me from having Christ on that solitary throne. So what I want to do with you now in a very worshipful way is to draw three significant considerations found in these verses that pertain to Jesus Christ, known in the Old Testament as Messiah, New Testament word Christ, three significant considerations for this Christmas season that I think have direct bearing upon the way in which we, we approach God. The first is found in verse 1 down to verse 3, and we're going to phrase it like this, number one, that as a king priest, I want you to consider with me the Messiah's royal position. Now notice it begins a psalm of David. He was a musician, like a lot of you, very musically oriented. So he found poetic ways to be able to offer spiritual truths. Now, as you begin to move into that first verse, you're going to join with me and notice that there are three participants within this opening phrase of verse 1. You might even want to write the name above each of those participants to be able to set this straight, because it can look confusing on the onset. Notice how it reads. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Stop right there. You're going to notice with me that the wording begins, the Lord, and it is a capital L-O-R-D. The Hebrew word, Yahweh the relational, covenantal name for God. God desires a relationship with you, 
a covenantal relationship with you, not a contractual, a covenantal, based upon Christ's work, not based upon our work. All of that stands behind the one who takes the initiative. We don't, he does. And so covenantally now, he wants to enter into this relationship with you, and that's why that opening word is capitalized, four letters, L-O-R-D. It stands out. This is a God who wants relationship, even with a sinful person like a Gary Highlander. And so now, you might want to write on top of capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh God. But notice furthermore, Yahweh God, the Lord, says to my Lord. Now notice the word my. Who is my? That is David speaking at this point. As he pens this musical composition for you and me to grapple with. So now what we find is that the king of Israel has this tremendous opportunity to listen in as this Yahweh covenantal God is taking initiative relationally. But there is a third participant in this opening phrase. Notice it is now small case. Capital L, but then small O-R-D. Who is that? Jesus. Your Messiah. Your Christ. Now you have three significant participants in that opening phrase that helps us to begin to develop this train of thought. You've got Yahweh, the covenantal God, speaking in this divine hushed tone. And David now, a recipient to this information, has the opportunity to listen in as Yahweh God, first member of the Trinity, is speaking to Jesus Christ, second member of the Trinity. The Lord says to my David's Lord, my Lord as well. And here's what he says. And you don't want to miss it because it's in quotation marks in your English Bible. This is Yahweh, first member of the Trinity, speaking now to Jesus Christ, second member of the Trinity. Sit at my right hand. Stop right there. That's the reserved place. It's the seat of honor. He doesn't say to you, and he doesn't say to me, based upon our efforts and achievements, sit at my right hand. This is a statement made to the one who led the perfect life and then offers the perfect sacrifice. Three days later, all of that is validated through the resurrection from the dead. He ascends to heaven and therefore is seated at the right hand. Now, 1,000 years prior to that happening, prophetically, this is what is being shared, is David now is privy to insider information between the first and the second members of the Trinity, anticipating good is done with regard to what Jesus Christ was commissioned to do. Is this powerful, or is this powerful? I didn't even give you an option there, did I? (laughs) 
sit at my right hand. This is a place of exclusive authority. Now, in multiple spiritualities around the world, that is a very difficult thing for a Gandhi type to be willing to embrace. That there is an exclusive throne that has been secured for an exclusive member. It is Jesus Christ. So he said, I am unable to place Jesus Christ on a solitary throne. The reality is that Yahweh God is able to place Jesus Christ on a solitary throne. It is not about my placement. It is about God's placement. Because Yahweh God raised the second member of the Trinity from the dead. And so my responsibility is not to vote him into office. My responsibility is to submit to him as my sovereign king. I've been thinking about that because... In the past days, you and I have watched as Will and Kate made their way across the United States. Made their way to the White House and even got photographed with LeBron James. And I began thinking about that and pondered how that relates to 1776 when the slogan of the Revolutionary War was, We will serve no sovereign here. Speaking of the royalty of Great Britain. So I checked out a number of websites and then made note to self. Highlander. We tend to prefer royalty mingling among us. not royalty ruling over us. And then I pulled out some notes from a a history course of years ago. Because during the Revolutionary War, notice how we're moving from 2014 back to 1776, back and forth like this, you see, because history is his story. You see, right after the Revolutionary War, General Lafayette, who was involved in equipping the American troops, returned to France. He had a high political office, but then the Chamber of Deputies removed Lafayette from his political office, viewing him as a threat. And the king, fearing retaliation from the populace, offered Lafayette the title Honorary Commander-in-Chief of the National Guard for Life. Lafayette's response, how would your majesty be pleased with the title Honorary King of France for Life? And now I yank that out of the 1700s and put that back into our own context of 2014 and ask to what degree are we prone to make Jesus Christ honorary king 
of our lives, even for life. We'll grant him that, you see. But you know, it didn't start with me positioning him on that solitary throne, voting him into office. You notice the sovereignty at work here as David is given an insider's perspective on the covenantal relationship between the first and the second members of the Trinity. It is Yahweh God who desires relationship with you, relationship with me, who says this as David is listening in, inspired by the workings of the Holy Spirit. You really have the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit at work here in all this, you see. My Lord, Messiah, Adonai, sit at my right hand. How long, you ask? Until I make your enemies your footstool. And all of a sudden, though 1,000 years prior to Christ's birth in Bethlehem, he has transported you not only through Bethlehem and Calvary, all the way to the book of Revelation and the second coming of Jesus Christ. We read about that in chapter 19 of that apocalyptic book. But how does Jesus handle all this? Now you're asking a good question. Check out Matthew 22 and verse 41 through 46, which appears on the screen at this point. And notice that Jesus Christ is standing before his opposition. He's inching closer to the cross. And he is absolutely brilliant at getting people to think about things that matter most, which is what you and I need to get people to do in the course of these Intensely spiritual days, the Advent season. So the Pharisees are around Jesus. They're gathered together, and you see it on the screen. And Jesus now asks a question. Too many times Christians are trying to deliver all the answers without asking the critical questions. So Jesus asks them a question, saying, Well, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Quick response. They said to him, the son of David. Now, they know their older testament. So he said to them, well, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? In other words, how can this descendant of David be David's Lord? Saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now you can imagine their consternation as the people out on the streets are singing Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord entering into Jerusalem. Messiah. Lord. If then David calls him Lord as if to say, if David views me as his Messiah... If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? He wants to draw them out, get them to think about this covenantal relational God who desires relationship with us based upon our faith in Christ alone. And what happens? No one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him, you see, any more questions. Chuck Colson standing in the White House with President Nixon. And he records the conversation as Nixon's musing about what people want in their leaders. And he 
Mr. Nixon slowed a moment, looking to the distance across the south lawn, and then said, the people really want a leader a little bigger than themselves, don't they, Chuck? We're told that Chuck Colson said, I agree. Nixon goes on. I mean, someone like de Gaulle, he continued. There's a certain aloofness, a power that's exuded by great men that great that people feel and want to follow. But here is the irony of it all. Back to that prior illustration. Not only do we have this king who rules over us, we have this king who is willing to mingle among us. With us and over us. Not one to the exclusion of the other. That is the powerful, powerful message of this covenantal conversation within the Godhead. And so now what's being mapped out, of course, is this road to Calvary via Bethlehem. And you and I are pondering the significance of what Jesus Christ is utilizing as he draws out this messianic promise 1,000 years prior to his entrance. But he's using Scripture to get people to think, as should you and as should me. He's posing questions. In verse 2, the Lord Yahweh, in Psalm 110, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. And you know your older testament. You know that in Genesis chapter 49, you and I are told that there is this messianic promise that the scepter is found, is to be found in the tribe of Judah. And Jesus is of the tribe of Judah validated by the fact that when Joseph and Mary go to register, they will register him in Bethlehem, which will denote the fact that he is of the tribe of Judah. God goes out of his way to credential his Messiah. All the more reason for you and for me, if you're intellectually curious, spiritually hungry for those things that can converge together in your mind as well as in your soul, to be able to embrace all of this, you see. And we're only in verse 2. Rue in the midst of your enemies, he says. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. And you say, well, Gary, when is the day of power? And the answer is, well, that's that final day still to come in the future. Now he's transporting us poetically yet prophetically on past the ascension all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he's talking about that final army and that final day. On the day of your power and holy garments. In other words, it's a set-apart people for a set-apart task. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And I thought about that because in recent days, some of our family members went to see The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, the drama that was, that was shown recently. And... Uh, Congratulate Jim and Marge Voigt. Their granddaughter played Lucy, and she was terrific. 
There's a scene that C.S. Lewis has in the book that showed up in the drama, variation in the drama, where Father Christmas now is prepping Peter and Susan, Lucy, for a future battle. Now, I want you to take Psalm 110 and transport it Thousand years to Jesus Christ transport furthermore to Revelation chapter 19. And look very carefully. It's what it says here. Your people in verse 3 will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Peter. Adam's son, said Father Christmas. Here, sir, said Peter. These are your presents, was the answer, and they are tools, not toys. The time to use them is perhaps near at hand. Bear them well. With these words, he handed to Peter a shield and a sword. Susan, Eve's daughter, said Father Christmas. These are for you. And he handed her a bow and a quiver full of arrows and a little ivory horn. Lucy, Eve's daughter, Lucy comes forward, you see. And he gave her a little bottle of what looked like glass and a small dagger. And then when all was said and done, and right when you think we should be singing peace on earth, he cries out, Merry Christmas. Long live the true king. And in syncretistic India, Mahatma Gandhi says, I am unable to place Jesus Christ on a solitary throne. And a Lafayette turns to the king and wants to know if he would be interested in becoming honorary king of France for life. But you and I get personal at this point and ask, am I falling to that same trap? Am I prone to want to just simply position myself on that throne and simply allow for Jesus Christ? to be my honorary king rather than to have absolute authority based on his finished work. But then your mind goes back to the fact that you and I were not the ones that positioned him on the throne. It is the L-O-R-D, capitalized, who says to my Lord, L and then small cap, O-R-D, Messiah, these things. And the covenantal relationship is speaking to you and speaking to me at this point. There's a solitary throne, but there's a solitary Savior for that throne. See your Lord. Now, he's not finished yet. Because in verse 4, what he does for you and what he does for me is to provide us a second worshipful consideration. In verse 4, we'll put it like this, number 2, that as our king-priest, consider with me the Messiah's perpetual priesthood. The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, has sworn and will not change his mind. Now, I have had to go into courts, raise my hand, And by the raising of the hand, obviously, even in America today, the raising of the hand, just like the steeple on a church, is pointed upward to a higher authority. 
It is a symbolic gesture. Well, I swear to tell the truth, all the truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. What is fascinating here is that in the triune God, this oath, this swearing, is to not a higher authority, but to self. There is no one higher. At this point, the hand, so to speak, goes vertical, horizontal instead of vertical like mine. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. It's irrevocable. It is unchangeable. And notice now it's in quotes. And for those of you that come out of religious backgrounds that had priests associated with them, look at what it says. You, speaking of the second member of the Trinity, you are a priest forever. It's not temporal. It's eternal. But then you've you got a head scratch on your hands here because it goes on to say, after the order of Melchizedek. But our insert notes in the little paragraph that this takes us back to the illusion of Genesis chapter 14. Illusion starting with the letter A, not I. Because what he wants us to see at this point is the historical element attached to this prophetic promise. There was a priesthood of the line of Levi, but those guys kept dying off and dying off and dying off, and they had to continuously be replaced by a new priest, by another priest, another priest. Furthermore, their births and their deaths would be recorded to establish the fact that they were truly of the line of Levi. But this Melchizedek in the Bible, there is no record of either his birth nor his death. Now, using this imagery then, what David is saying is that this king-priest is of a whole different line. He's, he's in a whole different category. He's in a genre of his own. And in your Old Testament, where there was a separation between prophet, priest, and king, here we find, really in our Old Testament, the merging of this, because this is being ascribed prophetically, prophet. This is being ascribed royally, king. But furthermore, here's the intercessory factor, priest, prophet, priest, and king. All this is packed in as you and I get to embrace spiritually, intellectually, willingly, all that's here. The grave is empty. He's risen. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on this in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, and again verse 6, which now appears on the screen likewise, because here you and I find that in the Newer Testament, there needed to be a statement in unmistakable terms to people who had a Jewish ethnicity attached to them. Jesus is that Messiah. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be a high, made a high priest, but was appointed by him. You see the covenantal first member of the Trinity making this appointment? By him who said to him, you are my son today, I have begotten you. And as he also in another place, 
He says this. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Which means then that when you now allow for this to take you to the place where Jesus Christ was standing in the temple and he was explaining himself even to his opponents and to his critics while the priests were busy preparing the sacrifices What God the Father was doing was preparing the ultimate sacrifice through the usage of this prophet, priest, and king to die in our place to inhabit that solitary throne. Which means then, out of all this, you and I now have access to God through Christ. But what we find here in our culture is that there are too many false spiritualities that are caught up with security breaches. They're trying to break in on their term, salvation by works, rather than God's term, salvation by Christ's work. We put our faith and trust in him. You know, in the autobiography by Chuck Yeager, You know, he was the test pilot who first broke the sound barrier. There's this chapter entitled To Moscow with Jackie. And Jaeger talks about flying across the Atlantic to visit the old Soviet Union with famous woman pilot Jackie Cochran. And before they set out, they had received permission from General Tommy White, Air Force Chief of Staff, to make stops at various Air Force installations installations for refueling and service along the way. And General White sent letters ahead to base commanders along the way. But we're told in his autobiography that one of their first stops was to be was to be in Maine around two in the morning. And as they approached the field they were almost out of fuel. But when they got to But when they got the tower on the radio, they refused permission for them to land. I'm reading now. Jaeger asked from General White, got permission, but they just simply responded with, well, so does Lana Turner. And they argued over the radio until finally Chuck told them that this was an emergency, that they were going to have to accept them As they were about to run out of fuel, the tower people threatened to turn off the runway lights. Jaeger recounts what happens next. Jackie grabbed the mic and said, this is Jackie Cochran. I am landing. They said, no access permitted. She said, I am landing. They said, no access permitted. She said, I am landing. And then he goes on to say, and as soon as we stopped rolling, the airplane was surrounded by air police who clumped aboard, ordered us out, escorted us under guard to base operations, and finally the commander arrived, who obviously didn't read his mail because Jackie's name meant nothing to him. Quote, you people will leave immediately, he said. This base is closed to civilian traffic. Jackie Cochran smiled and asked, Sir, with your permission, I would like to make a phone call. The colonel nodded, and then Jackie 
contacted General Tommy White, Air Force Chief of Staff. And she said, Tommy, sorry to wake you, but I've landed on your base here in Maine, and I'm getting the treatment. Uh, Yes, sir. The commander is standing right here. Would you like to talk with him? She hands the receiver to the commander. We are told that he was the first guy I ever saw talk on the phone while standing at attention. His face turned chalk as he muttered, Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And when he hung up, he turned and said, Access granted. Now the false spiritualities of this world are attempting security breaches. But in the covenantal dialogue of verse 1, where the first member of the Trinity has credentialed the second member of the Trinity and serves as our king priest. The veil of the temple was torn in two, not from bottom up, signifying human works, but from top down, signifying Christ's work, so that God the Father is saying through God the Son, access granted. And now you've got more to our Bethlehem story, you see. Where magi from the east are coming looking for the one born king of the Jews. They've come to worship him. And now these considerations challenge us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Because the priest is involved here as access is now granted. And we come to the Father through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. And our priest is a forever kind of priest. After the order of Melchizedek. So now you look at that and ask, where do I stand in relationship to that one on the throne? Honorary? Or one with exclusive authority? Because it leads now to this third and final consideration flowing out of five through seven. That thirdly, as our king priests consider with me the Messiah's final conquest. And now you've got revelation flashing in front of your very eyes. Chapter 19 in particular. You see how the scriptures connect the dots. The Lord is at your right hand. Adonai, capital L now, small O-R-D, speaking Messiah. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Speaking of that future day to come. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And all of this is consistent with what God had initially promised in that first messianic claim in Genesis chapter 3. Where in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, 
and you shall bruise his heel. And now David, looking at his own personal experiences, takes a deep breath before he pens, verse 7, and recounts some of his conquests militarily. One in particular where he had stood at a brook and thirsty and weary after the victory had been secured, took a drink from the waters, and he applies it. He will drink from the brook, by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. And now you look at verse 5 through 7, and you ponder what Pastor McDonald, he did a fantastic job last week, expounded in Psalm chapter 72, 9 through 11, the prior royal messianic psalm, as it appears on the screen. And notice how it reads. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust, the very phraseology taken from the Genesis chapter 3 statement about the serpent. Speaking of that final day, May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Zeba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him, and every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess, you see, that Jesus Christ is Lord. No honorary king here. I am unable to place Jesus Christ on a solitary throne, says Alita. But now what you and I have to do is to examine the claims, the credentials of the risen Savior and the covenantal plan established in eternity past and explain 1,000 years prior to Jesus entering Bethlehem where poetically and prophetically all this merges together and the evidence is at hand question is this. Are you submitting your life to the one that God the Father has placed on the throne? He alone is Savior. He alone is Lord. Let's stand together. So, Father, we're looking at the richness of this musical composition of David's. And we see the insider information of what's taken place communication-wise within the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the practical application is how it relates to each of our lives here. Sometimes we want to separate the private from the public aspects of our lives. Sometimes we want to separate the internals from the externals of our lives. But the one who sits on that solitary throne wants all of us, the inside and the outside, the private and the public. Nothing less will do. He was raised from the grave to prove he deserves it. So, Father, if there's anyone here that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and they're so hungry for ultimate meaning in life,
pray now they will put their faith and trust in Jesus alone for their salvation and honor the one who is worthy to be their king. For this we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.